Support for the interchange comes from Wonder Capital, the easiest way to invest in large-scale solar projects across the U.S. With Wonder, you can help finance renewable energy while earning up to 7.5% annually. To get started, visit wondercapital.com/gtm. That is Wonder with a U. wondercapital.com/gtm. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. The interchange is also brought to you by Shoals Technologies Group, a global leader in balance of system solutions for solar and storage. This American company has deployed products on more than 25 gigawatts of solar around the world. Shoals is the gold standard for solar and storage. To learn more about how Shoals can make your project operate at the highest level, visit shoals.com. That's S H O A L S, shoals.com. This is The Interchange, conversations about the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm GTM Editor-in-Chief Stephen Lacey in Boston. Hello. I'm joined by Shale Khan, the Senior VP of Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners. Hey, Shale. Hey, Stephen. This week, Europe was once the biggest solar subsidy spender of them all. Is it about to become the leader in subsidy-free solar? And what does it tell us about this new era of growth? As we log more than 100 gigawatts of PV globally a year, We're seeing this broad shift away from lavish government-backed policies like feed-in tariffs toward competitive auctions, and in many cases, a hybrid between the two. And in auctions around the world, from Latin America to the Middle East to Europe, solar is coming in at the lowest price compared to other resources, both conventional and renewable. This is making the old world of solar, Western Europe, attractive once again. But will this solar be enough to make up for the tens of gigawatts of coal and nuke plants closing around the region? Tom Haggerty is with us to grapple with that question. Tom is a senior analyst at GTM Researchers Global Solar Team, and he joins us from Edinburgh, Scotland. Tom, welcome. Hi, Stephen. Great to be here. What is past is prologue. I felt it appropriate to quote Shakespeare Uh, Because this conversation calls for a quick history lesson. In the short chronology of the rise and fall of solar kingdoms, Europe has one of the richest stories. Shale, remind us of Europe's once mighty stature in solar and why its power slipped. Sure. So a decade ago, Europe was kind of the epicenter of the solar market. For a while, it was the epicenter of both solar manufacturing, panel manufacturing, and the downstream market where panels were actually installed. The, the, the manufacturing side of that shifted to China a little bit earlier. But you know, through 2011, 2012, the majority of the solar that was getting installed in the world was happening in Europe. And Germany was the biggest part of that. And, and you know, thanks to a pretty aggressive feed-in tariff in Germany, it was the largest market in the world most years um, from, you know, 2000, I think, seven through 2012. But there were also these other, you know, short-term boom-bust markets that kept popping up. So for those of us, including myself, who at the time were trying to forecast how much solar was going to get installed each year, the bane of our existence was the boom-bust feed-in tariff market. So there were at least three of these in Europe that happened. I think in 2008, it was Spain. In 2009 or 2010, it was the Czech Republic. And then we had Italy in one of those years as well. And what would happen is a new country would introduce a pretty high feed-in tariff where you'd get a rate well above the the wholesale price of electricity um, fixed for 20 years or 25 years. There would be an uncapped feed-in tariff, so there was no limit to the amount of capacity that 
could get built. And they would have gone through a lot of effort to figure out what the feed-in tariff rate should be based on what they thought the economics of solar were at the time. But the reality was the cost of solar was falling far faster than anybody anticipated. And so every time a country would set one of these policies, all of a sudden you'd get far more solar than you expected. And so they would boom, they'd have a year of a boom, and then they would have to drastically slash those feed-in tariffs, which would then cause a bust. And in the most dramatic of those cases, which is Spain, not only did they slash the feed-in tariff, but they then tried to retroactively cut the feed-in tariffs on the projects that had already been installed and had been financed on the basis of an assumption that the government was good for the 20-year contract that they were offering. So the, and and meanwhile, Germany was sort of going through boom, 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 bust, right? So Germany didn't have the one-year boom. What happened in Germany was they kept cutting the feed-in tariff. They kept lowering the feed-in tariff rate year over year as they would get more solar installed than they expected. But then the solar costs would fall even faster and you'd still have another boom. So ultimately what that meant was that if you look at Europe as a whole, it peaked in terms of solar installations in a certain year in 2011 at 22 gigawatts installed that year alone in Europe. But then all of the markets basically crashed after that, including Germany. And so it hit its, it, you know, so a long sort of steady slow decline from a, a European perspective such that it hit its nadir in, in 2016, pretty recently at seven gigawatts. So it was less than a third of what was installed five years earlier. So while the rest of the world is ramping up and solar is expanding and getting cheaper and, you know, the U.S. market is picking up and the Chinese market is picking up and other countries, Europe is going through the opposite thing. Um, and so what's exciting now is just that we're starting to see that turn around and there's kind of a whole bright new future in front of Europe, but it's been somewhat of a painful decade. In retrospect, there are two stories that come out of Europe. One is that Europe caused, some of these European markets caused a lot of turmoil and overspent for the solar that they deployed. The other is that they kickstarted a global industry and were supporting solar when nobody else wanted to. And sure, they might have overpaid for it, but they supported a lot of early manufacturing and the market was able to spread around the world uh, and learn from Germany's lessons, both in deployment and in production. Tom, which of those storylines do you subscribe to? Yeah, so I think um, it's a combination of of the two, really. So um, certainly, um, you know, Europe... By providing those very generous feed-in tariffs back, you know, through 2008, 9, 10, 11, um, really helped kickstart um, investment globally in solar and, and manufacturing for solar as well. Um, but certainly, those those policy measures were quite a, a blunt instrument, I suppose. So, you know, by offering those tariffs that, um, in many cases, uh, you know, just were way too generous. Uh, reductions in those tariffs didn't keep pace with the falling cost of solar globally. That kind of did set the European market back a few years as well, because you got to a point where people saw solar as just being way too expensive. Um, The cost to consumers of supporting those feed-in tariffs became extremely high. In Germany, for example, you had a situation where the German market had um, you know, incredible growth in solar and, and some of the lowest wholesale power prices in Europe because in parts because of that growth in, in very low cost carbon supply, but also had on the on the flip side some of the highest retail prices in Europe. And that's partly because um, 
uh, consumers on the retail side were having to pay for those subsidies to support solar and wind installations. So you had a kind of a, a strange situation where very low prices were being delivered into the wholesale market, but retail consumers were having to pay a very high price for that. And that's in part because the feed-in tariffs were simply set at such a high level and such you know, dramatic installations um, were, were, were delivered into the market as a result. So it's kind of a, a, a two sides to the coin, I suppose. You know, um, Europe was able to kind of help kickstart the, the global growth in the solar market that we've seen, but um, certainly the policies they employed were, were by no means perfect and, and did have some negative ramifications for the European market itself. One thing that I wonder is, and Tom, I'm interested to get your take on this, is whether it's worth talking about Europe as as a singular entity in this context, or whether it's all very country specific. It's certainly true that feed-in tariffs were all the rage in Europe, and that you had a number of markets that went through similar boom-bust cycles. But as you look at it today, how much of what we see in solar is European generally versus country specific? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really good point, I think. And, you know, we talk about Europe as a, as a homogenous region in some cases, and, and we're talking about the European solar market as having a something of a resurgence over the next few years. But that's absolutely, you know, if we look down to the country level, there are very different things going on there. Um, so just off the top of my head, I mean, in Germany and France, we have um, the market really now being driven by competitive auctioning processes, um, which are delivering ever lower costs for utility scale solar. Um, whereas in the UK, um, at the start of last year, we saw um, all new subsidies for large scale solar projects come to an end. So the UK market has effectively uh, slowed down to a to almost a standstill. Um, then in, in Southern Europe, we've got um, unsubsidized projects starting to take off in markets like Spain and Portugal, where again, there's no real government supported program for utility scale solar. Um, a country like Italy, Again, nothing in place right now, but some really aggressive targets being talked about by the government. So, you know, you to understand what's going on beneath the surface in Europe, you really need to look at those individual country level drivers because, you know, there are lots of uh, lots of nuance, I suppose, in terms of what's happening in the markets and, and different things going on in different markets. And so, there aren't that many developers when we look at utility scale solar who are active across the entire European region for that reason. Because, you know, in many cases, you do need to take quite a different approach to project development across different markets and different business models are in play. Um, so, it's a pretty complex region when we look at the utility scale solar space, certainly. Let's let's be a little bit more specific about what these auctions actually are. So when and, and I'm sure it differs from country to country, but broadly speaking, when one of these countries runs a competitive auction, what are they actually auctioning off? Is it are they saying, you know, give me your 20 year PPA price and it will be a fixed price contract? Are they auctioning off? You know, I know in the case of, for example, offshore wind, a lot of those auctions have ended up being it's, it's a here's your adder on top of the wholesale rate. So what do the solar auctions look like across those countries? Yeah, so again, this is this is where there's quite a lot of complexity down at a country level. So there are a number of different ways that countries do this, from a pretty straightforward competitive reverse auction where developers will roll up and they'll they'll offer their their best or lowest price for a, 
a fixed PPA over 15, 20 years or whatever that might be, um, like we see in, in the Middle East, in, in Latin America, these kind of places, or um, in a number of countries. So this is what we see in France and Germany. And, and like you mentioned, shale, for, for, what, for what we've seen for offshore wind, um, we have what's called feed-in premiums. So um, those are um, essentially where the, the government is offering a top-up um, on top of wholesale power price revenues. So they might offer, um, you know, somebody might bid 50 euros per megawatt hour, um, and then they'll receive, say, 40 euros from the wholesale power market um, when they sell their power into the market, and the government will top that up to, to meet that price that they've received through the auction. Um, and then the kind of third way that we're seeing countries um, offer support to large-scale solar and wind projects is by setting a, a budget um, and then getting um, developers to come in and, and bid for that budget, essentially. So that's what we see in the Netherlands. Um, they've got a pretty well-established uh, program of subsidies called S the SDE Plus scheme, which is technology neutral. Um, and that has a defined budget in each round, and companies can come in and basically bid for a, a part of that budget. Um, and that's then offered to them on a kind of a feed-in premium basis. So they're... Again, it's you know we talk about these competitive auctions sweeping across Europe, but there's there's a lot of nuance there once again. And and another point to make there is that um, in some markets we're seeing these auctions just available to large scale solar developers. Um, in some markets we're seeing solar and wind, onshore wind being able to compete. In some markets we're seeing you know all renewable energy technologies being able to go after the same pot of money. Um, so there's there is a lot of difference in terms of how these these programs are operating. There's a lot of variability, but the constant is that there is government role in in some way. Um, what do we mean when we talk about uh, subsidy free projects or unsubsidized projects? What kind of auction systems are truly unsubsidized? Well, I mean, when we talk about unsubsidized solar in, in Europe, we are essentially talking about projects that are proceeding without any kind of government support at all and, and outside of any of these auction programs. So in Spain, for example, um, there were two auction rounds run um, in the middle of 2017 where onshore wind and solar were able to compete. Um, but those were kind of one-off auctions um and almost kind of hark back to that boom and bust era that we saw back in um you know around 2008 9 10 spain really ran those auctions because they were in danger of not meeting their eu 2020 target obligations um which is obviously rapidly approaching um but outside of that auction that we saw in 2017 there's now no support scheme in spain for large-scale solar projects but at the same time we're seeing a huge amount of project development for some very large projects taking place in spain so you know multi-hundred megawatt projects being um being permitted um having contracts signed um at the moment without any kind of support from the government and in fact the spanish government has uh, historically made things pretty difficult for large-scale solar developments to take place so that's what we mean when we talk about unsubsidized solar is, is project development that's taking place without any kind of government guarantee no long-term contract backed by the government or the regulator and and they're really proceeding on on their own basis um, typically through signing long-term power purchase agreements with um, with other off-takers. So that might be with utilities or power traders 
or in, uh, in fewer cases, but in some cases, potentially also um, large-scale corporate consumers as well. The interchange is supported by Wonder Capital, the easiest way to invest in commercial-scale solar projects across the U.S. So Europe had its decline and is rising from the ashes. The U.S. market has stayed relatively steady. And in fact, non-residential solar outperformed other sectors in terms of growth last year. And Wonder Capital financed approximately 40 megawatts of commercial solar that year. This year, it expects to finance 120 megawatts. So you, investors like you, can get in and earn up to 7.5% annually by helping fund these commercial solar projects through their solar investment fund. To date, Wonder has financed more than 180 commercial-scale projects across the U.S., Visit wondercapital.com slash GTM. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash GTM, to find out how you can begin investing in solar projects while earning up to 7.5% annually. Again, wondercapital.com slash GTM. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. The interchange is also brought to you by Shoals Technologies Group, a leading manufacturer of balance of system solutions for solar and storage. Shoals operates all around the world. It is featured on some of the most important solar projects in every region of the world. The company has been growing exponentially, and it maintains the same passion for quality and innovation no matter where it deploys its products or how fast it grows. Uh, the products range from combiner boxes to junction boxes, inline fuses, monitoring systems. It has this new BLA solution that uh, it's, it's an integrated wire harness that eliminates combiner boxes and significantly lowers installation costs. So if you're looking to step up your game with the best balance of system solutions in the industry, contact Shoals. You can find out more at Shoals.com. That's S-H-O-A-L-S, Shoals.com. How much are we starting to see in Europe uh the impacts of duck curve like phenomena. I mean, there, there are markets in Europe where you have higher solar penetration than you have almost anywhere in the US outside of maybe Hawaii. Um, meanwhile, you're getting these fixed price contracts, but the wholesale prices are, are crashing. So what is that meaning in terms of how governments are supporting solar and to what extent is it shifting toward asking for, for example, solar plus storage so that the solar becomes semi-dispatchable? It's, it's not a problem we've seen to a huge degree in Europe yet. Um, and probably, um, if anything, wind is, is kind of uh, more responsible for um, you know, big fluctuations or negative pricing that we've seen in, in Europe. So there was recently um, negative prices, uh, wholesale prices in Germany over the Christmas period at the end of last year. And, and that was because um, it was an unseasonably warm and windy period during December when demand was very low and, and there were a, a number of hours of negative pricing there. We don't really see that yet in, in the summer months in Europe, but that's certainly a risk as, as solar continues to ramp up and as Europe returns to um, being a pretty strong growth market for solar. But solar plus storage will will absolutely um, play a greater role um, in some markets throughout the region and particularly the uh, countries like the UK um, where the economics of solar on an unsubsidized basis are nowhere near as good as they are in southern Europe primarily because it's sun doesn't shine so often um, but those projects you know we are seeing some of those um, move ahead paired with storage where there's that ability to to load shift um, your production into higher priced hours during the evening. But also if you if you pay your project with storage, it allows you to potentially open up 
new revenue streams for those developments. So it allows you to maybe play in frequency reserve markets or capacity market markets potentially as well. Um, so we we are a little bit away from seeing kind of significant problems with with dot curves in Europe right now, but that's certainly a risk that um, the markets will have to come to terms with if solar continues to grow at the rate that we're expecting to see over the next few years. Let's center back to my original premise, which was we saw a region that was a leader in you know dumping government money into solar. That region fell off the map when you, you looked at the leading solar markets. And now it's back with um, low subsidy or unsubsidized solar. Um, how significant is that shift? I mean, w- what in your opinion does this say about the next phase of growth for solar? I think it's really significant. And um, it shows that the technology is, is, is entering the mainstream. I think you know throughout the period... 2008 to 2012, um, you know, solar was viewed as this technology that really needed a lot of government support and, and was viewed as very expensive and people were seeing the impact of um, supporting feed-in tariffs on their, on their retail bills. But we're starting to, to very much move away from that now. And, and you know, as we continually seeing lower and lower tariffs for solar PV being awarded throughout Europe, as well as throughout the world, the perception of, of solar as a, as a high-priced technology is, is, is definitely starting to change. Um, so that's a real, a real shift for Europe. And, and one of the other things that we've seen in the past few months as well, which kind of is, is very representative of, of that kind of seismic shift that, that we're expecting to see, is some really significant announcements in terms of new targets for solar capacity development in Europe. So the first one, um, which is really hugely significant, we think, is that EDF, the, the French national utility, set itself a target of installing 30 gigawatts of solar in France by 2035. Now, EDF is you know one of Europe's old traditional utilities, which until very recently had kind of been pretty slow to react to the changing environment for well, the, or the energy transition, I suppose, we, as we're calling it now. So for them to come and say, you know, we're going to build 30 gigawatts of solar in France over the next uh, 15 years or so is is hugely significant and is and is emblematic of the change that we're seeing and, and shifting perceptions around the technology. And then also in Italy, um, we've seen um, a proposed target to um, generate 72 terawatt hours from solar by 2030. And that's up from around 25 terawatt hours last year. So that's a more or less a tripling of the market for solar in Italy over the next 15 years or so, which again is, is hugely significant. So you know we're seeing the perception um, change you know, for solar and, and we're seeing that kind of being written into specific targets for installations for the technology, which um, you know really should drive the market forward over the next 10 years or so. So extraordinary. And clearly the, you know, markets like Germany are going to see very strong growth. So Germany will see a couple of gigawatts a year through 2022. I think they'll ramp up to a couple gigawatts a year, if I'm looking at your numbers correctly. And that's 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 wonderful. But we have to throw some clouds into this conversation. You know, maybe there's a little too much sunlight. Let's let's draw the curtains and bring a little bit of sprinkled showers and some clouds because, you know, even though we see Germany renew its growth, you're looking at, I think, around 12 gigawatts of nuclear plants that are going to come offline by 2022. 
Um, I don't know if it's exactly 12 gigawatts right now. Someone who's a Germany expert can correct me on that, but it's around that number. And so you're not even going to meet the capacity requirements with solar, even at such strong growth levels, um, let alone generation. And so Germany has this big gaping nuclear hole coming. And even with very strong unsubsidized solar growth, it's going to be tough for the country to fill in that gap. And, uh, you know, we're starting to face a similar challenge here in the United States. Solar growth will, you know, moderate because of some policy uncertainty, but its growth still looks pretty good. But we see a bunch of nuclear plants that are going to come offline and there's going to be this giant ga- carbon-free energy gap. And we're we're not just going to be running in place. We're going to be, you know, running way behind. So square that for me. I mean, are you I'm, – I'm kind of pessimistic when I look at those numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's probably important to note that this is not just an issue that Germany is facing. This is a Europe-wide issue and in some cases a global issue. I mean, um, the nuclear phase out in Germany is is one piece of the puzzle there. Um, but what we're also seeing is that um, in France, um, the government has pledged to uh, reduce nuclear from 75% of the power supply mix to 50%. Um, which is you know hugely significant. France is Europe's biggest exporter of electricity um, at the moment. I think the world's biggest ele- exporter of electricity. So, um, and and much of that is coming from that you know, massive fleet of nuclear power plants that France has. So, reducing that by a third is is really significant. At the same time, we've got um, numerous markets throughout Europe either legislating for or, or, or discussing phasing out coal generation as well. So in the UK, we have a coal phase out um, that's legislated for, and most of the UK's coal plants have already closed, and similar pro- uh, programs being discussed elsewhere throughout the region. So that's you know a huge reduction in, um, in baseload power supply throughout the region, which, you know, talking about kind of 8 to 15 gigawatts of solar being installed in Europe over the next five years is is not going to come close to replacing that power that's being lost. Um, you know, I think we're talking about around 90 gigawatts of um, coal and nuclear capacity alone being lost over the next 20 years or so in Europe, which is, um, to put that in context, that's as much power generation capacity as the UK has at the moment. So that's, you're essentially u- losing the UK market from, from Europe. Um, when we look at coal and nuclear capacity. So that's going to be a, a big shock to the European market. And, you know, um, legislators are going to have to, to come up with ways to, to make sure that um, the market still has sufficient reliable capacity. How much of that can, can be drawn from renewables and storage is, is obviously um, a question that needs answering. Um, you know, there'll still likely be a role for, for gas in the European market, but, um, how to support those those projects when they're running at increasingly low load factors is going to be a challenge as well. And, and certainly uh, the European market doesn't have all the answers in place right now in terms of policy and, and things could get pretty difficult over the next 10 years or so um, as some of that nuclear and coal capacity starts to come out of the market. Do we see a world in which it would be possible to fill in that gap of retiring plants with conventional renewable energy? Or do we need something else? And this gets beyond the scope of your research, but let's take those numbers and then scale them up. I mean, is there a world in which you could you could truly fill in that gap or are we just not, not even close? I think the challenge is obviously um, that, you know, you can replace the megawatts, but replacing the megawatt hours from 
from coal and nuclear is is a completely different challenge and you know when we're talking about about solar projects running at you know 15 to 17 percent load factor in germany a little bit higher in southern europe a little bit less in northern europe um compared to you know coal and nuclear plants that are going to be running at you know, between 60 and 80 percent utilization or potentially higher um you know there's a huge disparity there in in terms of the megawatt hours that are being lost and the megawatt hours that are being gained from solar um I mean, obviously, solar is not the only technology that that can can be brought to bear in Europe. I mean, um, I mean the wind market is still pretty strong in Europe, um, particularly the offshore wind market, and that's where we'll we'll see, I guess, much more bang for your buck in terms of um, power output uh, by you know capacity being delivered. You know, some of the offshore wind projects we're seeing in Europe can be you know forty, fifty percent load factor potentially in, in high wind speed areas. But it will be extremely challenging um, for Europe to uh, to meet that shortfall. I suppose it's worth adding that at the moment, the European power market is is pretty oversupplied. Electricity demand has been extremely weak since uh, 2008-9 with the, um, the global financial crisis. Um, and although, you know, people talk about electric vehicles as being a as being a real catalyst for electricity demand growth projections that, that we have in house so that those you know won't add significant volumes of power demands to to Europe's top line. So we will see that um you know there'll be something of a rebalancing in the market as as all of that supply comes out. But things could still get pretty challenging, you know, particularly um, when we see periods of, of very high demand and, and low wind speeds, you know, in, in, in the winter, when you also don't have much solar on the grid, um, things could get pretty challenging in terms of uh, keeping the lights on in Europe um, as all of that capacity comes off of the market. I think Europe is really interesting in because of the intermarket trading that you see. And so you'll simultaneously have examples in Europe and especially in, in Northern Europe and like Denmark and Norway, when you have within a country, extremely high penetration of renewables, it's been wind historically for the most part, but increasingly as time goes on, there'll be other countries where it looks like it's going to be solar. So you'll, you'll have a single country where you'll say, well, this is like 50%, 60, 70, 80% renewable energy. But then of course, um, you know, the way that you're getting to that is by trading with another country. So you have to look at what that country's resource mix is and what's being exported into that market. And yeah, you know, I think the the more there is intermarket balancing um, in Europe, the better able the markets are going to be to to absorb the resources. Europe has this benefit, as Tom said, of a pretty strong wind market and an offshore wind market that seems to be emerging pretty quickly that has a different uh, resource profile and a higher capacity factor than the, the onshore renewables that we've seen traditionally. So, you know, between the mix of resources, the intermarket trading, and then, you know, the serious thought that is being put in all throughout Europe into incentivizing flexibility in these markets and flexible resources. You know, I, I don't, I don't think it's going to be easy to adapt to the, to the loss of so much baseload power, but um, I do think that they're headed in the right direction. I don't think that we're, you know, we're not about to see any blackouts in Europe because there is insufficient resources. And as Tom said, they're oversupplied at the moment. So they've got some time to work it out. Tom Haggerty is a senior analyst with the global demand team at GTM Research. His recent report is the European solar PV market outlook for 2018. Tom, thanks so much. This was fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. And uh, we're going to be at Solar Summit next week in San Diego. Shale and I will be there 
talking to each other and to a few well-known people in the industry. So, Shale, I'll see you there. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you get your podcasts. Tweet out some ideas if you want us to cover something. Uh, we love to hear from our listeners or send an email to podcast at greentechmedia.com. Thanks for your support. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.